What does it take to be a top performing entrepreneur? Welcome to Inspiring Business Success, a podcast sponsored by Insperity, where we'll explore areas of entrepreneurial success and extraordinary professional performance. There is an abundance of good performers, but what about exceptional performance? This season, we will be exploring the defining characteristics of exceptional performers in business and in life. Inspiring Business Success is sponsored by Insperity. Insperity provides human resources solutions that make a difference in the success equation for the best small and medium-sized businesses. If you want to know more, go to insperity.com. Are you ready to reach new heights in your performance? Let's go to the studio now with Larry Schaefer, Senior Vice President of Marketing at Insperity, Dr. David Cook, author, speaker, and well-known sports psychologist, and Doug Tatum, author, professor, and entrepreneur. So as we go along this a little deeper into this pillar of mental toughness, we looked at uh, embracing the pressure. Boy, we can't minimize the preparation, can we, David? And really preparing for those emergencies. The second point under that pillar is practicing for the emergencies. Um, knowing your response ahead of time. You know, instead of fearing what might happen is to prepare an outcome for <laughs> what reality is. And, you know, we can always look back in our in our business life or in our sport life or whatever it might be and look at those situations that took us out of our game and go back and face them and say, okay, if that happened now, what would I do differently? And if you're in a team setting, you talk about it as a team. I love doing this with business and, and athletic teams. What What could we have done differently in that critical moment in that game or in this situation or how could we come back from that mistake because it's reality and and using that as you know as a platform going forward practicing for the emergencies when I was uh, 18 years old I dream about flying a plane my entire life I go off to college and they actually have a professional aviation program and so I take ground school and then flying as my electives and I remember going out with a pilot the first day and we're up about 2,000 feet on a glassy, smooth day, and we're up there, and this guy says, man, you like this, don't you? And he's showing me how to work all the the instruments to make the plane fly and turn and go up and down and all that. It was awesome. And then he did something crazy. He turned the engine off, and he said, we got an emergency. What are you going to do with this plane? Where are you going to put it down? And I'm going, you're the pilot. You take it. He goes, no, son, you take it. Get the nose down. Keep the wings level. Man, we start taking off. He says, where are you going to land? I said, well, there's a road. He says, you can't land on a road. There's power lines and there's trucks and cars. You got to get to a field. And, you know, all of a sudden the stall warning goes off. Beep, beep, beep. Not a good thing on your first flight. So he says, get that nose down. So now we're just pointing straight down, you know, now we're at like back a thousand feet. He goes, what's the field? Where's the field? I said, there's a field. He goes, no, those specs are cows. You can't land a plane on cows. Get to a different field. Where are you going? And, you know, and he's barking all these signals and everything. I said, there's a field. He goes, good. It's a cornfield. You're going to land with the rows or against the rows? You know, I'm going, what kind of question is that? <laughs> and he goes, you got to land with the rose or you'll flip the plane. And so we're moving along. We're at 600, 500 feet. And he reaches down and turns the engine on. He's done this a thousand times. He pulls us back up to a couple thousand feet. And he looks over at me. Of course, I'm ashen white. And my, my hands are like frozen on the steering column. And he says, son, I said, yes, I was complying at that moment. He says, um, you need to understand something by law. I cannot and will not sign you off to fly this plane until you're ready for an emergency. That's what we're going to do for the next 40 hours. We're going to practice emergencies. Now, I thought I was paying for flying lessons, and I found out I was 
paying for crashing lessons. <laughs> he said, if you want to continue the training, this is what the training is going to be about. So for the next 40 hours, we flew and we practiced every conceivable emergency you can imagine without actually starting a fire in the engine. And the day he got out and said, you're ready to go, he was supremely confident that I was ready to handle crosswinds, downwinds, anything that could happen in the air. And I did get hit by a crosswind coming in and stabled the plane and, and made it and had a lot of good years flying. But to me, maybe that was one of the greatest lessons I ever got in my life was to be prepared for the emergencies and not just go up there and enjoy everything when it's good, but what are you going to do when it's crazy? Doug, it, we call that contingency planning in business, right? We really do. Let's refer to entrepreneurship as a wild ride with lots of twists and turns and growing companies as taking risks. Well, I have to tell you a quick story. A colleague, he become a dear friend of mine, was, well, he was the original SEAL Team 6 sniper. If you do enough Googling out there, you'll figure out who I'm talking about. But the first time I met him, we were going to go out and to a little camp we had in Alabama and sit around and tell lies, I'm sure. But uh, I was to pick him up at the airport. And I'll never forget, as long as I live, is first time he was a tall, lanky, athletic gentleman who had obviously been in more dangerous situations than any entrepreneur can imagine. And I go rent the car and I'm space cadet. And anyway, so I'm, we're, I can't find the car. I thought it said yellow G and this, that, and the other. And, and eventually we found the car, but I'll never forget. The first thing he said is just hold on for a second. I need to go back and double check. And I said, uh, for what? He says, we obviously missed the sign. His training was so ingrained in him that he was not going to leave that scenario without going back and find out why he missed the sign. And one of the most interesting questions we ask owner operators is, what are the primary risks in your companies? We talk about, we live for the upsides. We talk about the vision. We've talked about that a lot on these podcasts. But how important is it for you and your team to sit down and say, where are the risks and what would we do? And let's face them. That practice the emergencies. I see a Navy SEAL guy who's, by the way, he was active Navy SEAL too. He was 40. So he was, it was after that when I got to know him, had that pattern of thinking about what could go wrong and where did I miss it constantly in the back of his mind ingrained into him. And I think that's something that, that we have to do in the business world. That reminds me of a story you told me about Captain Sully, that Tom Hanks movie, David. Tell me about that. So back to my flying illustration, obviously one day uh, Captain Sully takes off the plane in New York and uh, about 2,000, 3,000 feet hits, you know, flock of birds and blows the engines out. And the, uh, you know, it gets real quiet in the plane, not a good sign when you're taking off with full thrust. But he's over New York City. There's no field. There's no road. There's there's nothing to land on. There's no cor cornrows. No cornrows. <laughs> going with any cornrows there, and so he's got uh, he's got an option, and he's got about 20 seconds to figure it out. Can I turn the plane piece of metal in the air and get back to the runway? Is there another runway somewhere to my left or right in front of me that I can get to, or do I need to put it down in Manhattan? That's third and last choice, not a good one, and that's the choice he had to make. There's only one place in Manhattan that doesn't have buildings, and that's the river. But he's got to get down after one bridge for another bridge, and it's 24 degrees or whatever, and there's, you know, the river's uh, freezing. So if they land there, they still got they still got issues. 
and he chose the river and was calm enough to get that plane and landed in the river. Everybody got out. The tugboats, whoever came out and got them all out of the plane. Sully was the last one on the boat. Um, amazing. And they all survived. That's amazing. Now, the end of the story is this, and this brings it home. My wife's in line at a Whole Foods recently, and a lady and two little kids, three little kids walk up behind her, and they get in a conversation, and as my wife does with all the people she meets, she really engages, and they wanted to continue the conversation outside in the park next to the Whole Foods, and so they went outside, and the kids are playing, and my wife and this young lady are talking, and my wife's friend, new friend, said, I've got a book I want to give you. Uh, it's actually being published this, this week. And my wife said, great, I love it. You know, what is it about? And she looked at my wife and she said, I was on the plane. I was a passenger on Captain Sully's plane. Wow. Wow. And these kids weren't born at that point. And so it brought it home how incredibly life-changing and important it was for her that her pilot was calm, had practiced for the emergencies and all the simulators all those years, and was able to get the plane down and stay calm and get the people out and stay with the plane till the end. And now you see the remnants and the legacy of that three little kids. That was crazy important. And let me finish with this. The greatest maybe mind research brain research I, I've, I've seen this come out in years was by some Stanford scientists studying the brain. And they, they studied it, you know, what's the brain wired to do? What's its main function? Fascinating, so fascinating what they found. They came up with like these two sentences, or at least this is the way I paraphrase them. The brain is not wired for perfection. The second sentence is, the brain is wired for adapting. So most of us spend our life trying to be perfect at something, and we, we can't reach perfection, and trying to reach perfection keeps us from being great adapters. When the brain's capacity and most important job is to adapt, we fail to practice adapting. Now, in a golf illustration, you know, one of the first things I do when a pro comes and I call a pro someone that has their name on their bag, you know, like, you know, they make money at this, is I take them and I, I put them in some situations where they have to adapt and create shots. They're really good on the range hitting beautiful golf shots with beautiful swings that fit this thing called the track man and, you know, out on the range when there's no ramifications. And I put them in a, in a little situation where they've got to hit a very difficult shot and create it with a club they wouldn't normally use. And I'm telling you what, in our day and age, they fail miserably because they practice perfection. They don't practice adapting. And when they get in the game and their shots aren't perfect because our brain isn't wired for perfection, the first hole they get in a situation where they have to adapt, and are they any good from there? They're not really good from there. And they wonder why they're not making it and why they came to see me. And I said, you know, at least I want to say this. I don't always say this. I say, you ought to take your name off your bag because you are, you are, you're awful in the most important aspect of what it's going to mean to be a professional and skilled in this area. You, you have failed to prepare 
for the emergencies. In fact, your brain has unlimited capacity for adapting. And that's the way we need to practice this sport. When you adapt and you learn all of these shots and things, there's less fear when you miss something and you're actually engaging the mind in such a way that it expands and prepares you for the reality of that game. And I would say of business or of life. We have to see ourselves as adapters and prepare. And you know what? A lot of us get in ruts. We get in, we get in a rut because we can do this one thing well, and we try to keep doing it well, and we cut everything else in our life off, and boy, what a, what a miserable way to live. Adapters, they love to try things. They create new avenues uh, to success. They expand their field, their strategy, their, their ability to see performance in new ways, and they don't live with fear. They go, I've seen this. I've seen that. I can adapt to this, which is what Captain Sully, he had no other choice. Go, well, we've done this in simulators. Let's do it. And what an amazing ability to have adaption within you that you can call to your fingertips. And if all he had ever done is just take off and land, take off and land with full thrust, full throttle, mm-hmm. there's no telling what would have happened there. And I think this, man, this, this is such a good business um, uh, learning principle. It's such a good life principle and certainly it's a good sport principle. Let's take the next step, David. This is really, really good stuff. Paint a masterpiece is the third choice. Tell us about that. The third choice of mental toughness, the first one's embracing the pressure, being ready for the moments, you know, the performance most. The second one was practicing emergencies and, you know, knowing how you're going to respond in situations. The third one is painting a masterpiece. And that means that you go into the performance setting with a clear picture of success. What do you want to have happen rather than fearing what might happen? Creating that picture changes every instinct and every ability of our mind to make great decisions and and in our body to respond in a performance setting when we have the right picture in our head. When I was 14, I had a, a golf pro at this little blue-collar golf course I lived on that was an amazing teacher and mentor to me. And on his way to shooting a 61, that would be 11 under par on this particular day with me and a couple other kids. And every time he'd hit a great shot, he would say, Picasso. You know, I noticed that all day long, Picasso. And we're on the 17th hole, par three, hits up there about two or three feet from 168 yards and puts his club in his bag and says, Picasso. And I asked the question, Johnny, what do you mean Picasso? And he, it's almost like he was waiting for his student to ask a question to invest himself into the mentoring process. And he came up on the tee box and put his arm around me and said, look out there, what do you see? And I said, well, there's a lake down there to the right. There's a, there's a bunker to the right that doesn't have sand in it. It was the only bunker on this golf course. There's a hill with weeds on the left, the pins the back right, and there's a false front, meaning if you hit it short, it's going to roll down and then out to the right towards the lake. And I, I named all those things. I said, no, no, no. Now look again. What do, what do you see? I said, I see the lake, the hill, the weeds, you know, the bad bunker and the false front. He said, son, you don't get it. I go, well, I guess not, but I want to get it. He said, listen, you have a blank canvas in front of you before every performance. He said, you've got a choice to paint something on that picture. And that painting will affect the way you move and respond and, and the way your body will work. And he said, son, you've got to create a masterpiece. When I step up on that tee box and I'm, I've got that blank canvas, I begin to paint the picture of exactly what I want that shot to do. And I see it and I feel it and I trust it. And, and I, 
I map, you know, I map it out with my eyes and I see a masterpiece. He said, if, if you don't create a masterpiece, you're going to end up with a lot of stick figure outcomes, you know, like bad paintings or, or you're going to paint a masterpiece of a disaster and your body's going to follow that and your mind's going to follow that and it creates completely different things within your system. He said, son, I, I choose to paint a masterpiece and I think you should too. And then he ended with this, which was amazing. He said, when I put my club in my bag and I say Picasso, I'm simply signing the painting which goes way back to the early part of our podcast when we talked about accountability. He was accountable to himself. I will not hit a shot unless I paint a masterpiece in my head and I will sign it. And whether he had a great shot or not such a great shot, as long as he created that in his mind, he would say that. And it was sort of the way that he would make sure that he was accountable to that thing that he said. And he wasn't necessarily accountable to the outcome. Because the shots might vary, but he was accountable to what he did and how he thought before he hit the shot. Absolutely. And as we talked about in the last session, he was an adapter. So if it didn't go where he wanted, at least he gave himself the greatest probability for that to happen at a moment in time. And then he would adapt from there. And let me, let me finish with this, because this is fascinating. So 25 years later, I'm working with a PGA Tour player. And I mentioned him earlier, Steve Lowry. And we talked about how we got him to call his shot. And, and he ended up winning. But the f- another fascinating aspect of that is, you know, this whole calling your shot came out of what Johnny taught me when I was 14 before there was a field of performance psychology. In that first practice round, we get to number nine, and the caddy says to Steve, this is the playoff. It says to me, this is the playoff hole if we get in a playoff. And so I said, Steve, so you're in a playoff Sunday afternoon. What are you going to do? And it's kind of like, it wasn't a great answer because he was like thinking, like, I'm going to get in a playoff. I've missed five cuts in a row. But he said, well, you know, and so he got back into what we asked and he, and he began to call his shot. He said, well, I'm going to get it down out of the air in the elevation. They're up in Colorado. I'm going to get it on the ground. I'm going to hit it at that bunker on the left. I'm going to hit it left to right and get it on down on the ground, let it roll out. I'm going to play it back in my stance and hit a little three wood and make all that happen. You know, he's describing this thing. He's painting a masterpiece. Basically, I just changed the language to calling your shot. And he hits this perfect shot down there. And fast forward, it's Sunday afternoon, and they're on 17. He needs a miracle to get in a playoff. Um, and it's a par five, and the CBS has the – sound right there so you can hear what they're saying as they're talking and he's got two holes to go it's the second shot on a par five he can reach the green in two so a miracle could happen and he's talking to his caddy he said i'm gonna hit this towering five iron just left of the hole it's gonna fade in there hit short of the hole we're gonna have a tap in for an eagle you know and so you can hear this and so he he said there's a five iron and so the caddy gave him the club because he actually was accountable and talked about the shot he Pulls the club back, hits the shot, he's flying through the air, and the caddy has one of the greatest caddy lines of all time. As the ball's flying through the air, the caddy says, if that ain't no good, there ain't no good. <laughs> and that came out across CBS. That ball hits just left of the hole and side, you know, side rolls over towards the hole, and he's got two feet, taps it in for an eagle, and now he's tied for the lead. Parts the last hole and goes into a playoff. They go to number nine on Tuesday. We'd already talked about what are you going to do there. He turns to his caddy and he says, I'm hitting a three-wood off the back of my stance, get it down out of the air, left to right off the bunker. And he did exactly what he said he was going to do on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. Now it's Sunday. He does the same thing, hits it out there. And then his competitor walks up to his shot. He's about to swing and he backs off. 
takes a deep breath, walks back into it, hits it in the lake. And the, and the roving reporter down there goes, that's the same shot he hit here earlier today on this hole, or he would have already outright won the golf tournament, which then brings this whole story about today's podcast together. One guy painted a masterpiece of exactly what he wanted to do. The other guy was trying to avoid the trouble that he had already felt and experienced earlier in the day, and he didn't have a simple concept of his mind that Johnny taught me at 14 to, you know, his deal was don't hit it in the water, don't hit it in the water, don't hit it in the water. Instead of I want to hit this shot, he was trying to avoid a different shot, and the outcome so illustrates his point. And it was a simple thought process. It would have been a simple choice, but he didn't even have the choice because he hadn't prepared himself for the 20 minutes before the trophy celebration where he had to paint a masterpiece. When we apply these things to business, it's, it, it really brings to light, you know, beyond all the things that we learn in our entrepreneurship schools and MBAs, you know, it, it brings to light how powerful the way we think is in business and in leadership. Well, Larry, it's interesting. I'm heading down to Florida State University to kick off classes here literally in the next five days. What's fascinating is some of the cutting-edge business scientists have translated what David was talking into a process called Business Model Canvas. And it is a process by where a entrepreneur orchestrates a visualization of a business in such a way that it can be tested. So in other words, we have a bunker down there, we have a competitor down there. We have grass on that hill, we have a differentiation problem. But that whole process of business model canvas is literally a highly regarded, uh, started mostly on the West Coast, rapid prototyping and adaptation, to use the word that we used earlier, a value proposition. And it's interesting, uh, dimming the wonderful, brilliant management scientists called it the entrepreneurial art. Paul, your boss, founder, Savardi, called it the entrepreneurial faith in his book. And what they're trying to describe is that they can see the end before they execute. And if you can convey that to your team, that's part of alignment and part of the cause and all the other things that make these businesses work and allow them to step out of the ordinary. Wow, the artistic ability of an entrepreneurial leader is pretty critical, much more critical than maybe I ever considered. Absolutely. Let's move to trust. Trust your talent. Tell us why that's so important, David. Well, trust is an attitude in that volitional spectrum that I will. It means that I've trained for this, I've prepared for this, I've learned this. So I've got a decision right now. It's a decision at a moment in time to trust my abilities. Trust is different than doubt. It's the opposite. And it just means to step into my destiny, you know, to, to believe in what I've done. It, it's an attitude that frees you. Trust is it's the epitome of mental toughness in these situations. Let me tell you this story. I was working with the women's volleyball team at the University of Nebraska in 1995, and 
there, you know, coach heard me speak about these things and asked me to come share it with the team. And so I get to where they are. And he said, I've had a 21 year mission of bringing a national championship to Nebraska. And all my coaching peers say, you know, this is not a good volleyball state. You need to be on the coast where volleyball is the king. But I just believed it could happen here. And I had a 21 year mission this year. We're ranked number one, actually, to start the year. And so it looks like it's coming together. And I just want to make sure that we do everything we can to allow our talent to come out and for us to peak at the right time. And so I went through all the things we've done on the podcast all the way through there. And we get down to the final uh, match of the national championships, and it's going to be Nebraska against Texas. So the trophy's coming to the middle of the country one way or the other. I get a phone call from Coach, and I love this man. He's one of my favorite coaches of all time, a great philosopher, thinker. He loves the kids he coaches, and he's just brilliant. So he's just talking out loud, and I'm sounding bored. And and so I get the phone call, and he goes, you know, Dave, that's like 24 hours or so before the match. He goes, "I, I just don't know if we're ready. It's a question I think a lot of us that are perfectionistic, as we talked a few principles ago about, is if there's an amount of time between now and that performance, my brain races to where are the problems that I can solve before the event? Instead of saying, these are our strengths, this is who we are right now, and the haze in the barn, and my my greatest challenge is to get these young ladies on the court with trust and belief, not trying to fix problems at the end. And so one of the problems he was talking about, he says, well, I've got this four girls on the court that will be all American or are all Americans this year. And another girl that will be next year, you know, so basically five out of six of his girls were all American caliber. I mean, they could have just played without the sixth girl and won. But, and then he brings up the sixth girl and he says, you know, Kate, she's, she's the one I'm a little worried about because she's unorthodox. She doesn't quite do it the same way or the right way. And we've coached her so hard on these things to get her to do it right. But she just sort of becomes her own player, you know, kind of freelances when she plays. And I think, you know, if I was the other coach, I would sort of exploit her and go after her. And he says, I've got another girl I've been grooming and she doesn't actually play that position, but she's such a good athlete. She could play outside hitter that I'm thinking about putting her in, starting her. And she's a freshman. What do you think? You know, my brain just rushes to this idea of trust. And I, I'm not so concerned if this young girl can come in that doesn't normally play that position and do it because she's really mentally tough. But my my interest is in what the other five girls on the court are going to think when he makes a really big change ahead of the most important match of their life when they've they've all been in their positions for the entire year and they're 34 and 1 in that situation. Is the issue that he's expressing trust or doubt the most important thing that you can do as a coach is instill trust. And my thought might be to keep Kate there, to speak to her in terms of filling her with trust, belief, and a vision for success the next morning. And not to stop with her, but to do that with all the other young ladies so that your whole mission between now and the game is to build up what they have and who they are to instill trust. And then in the context of the game, you can move people in and out and all that kind of stuff. And um, and he listened. I mean, a great learner. And, you know, I could have been completely wrong. But that was fine with me. I just know how stable and important this idea of trust is. And he makes that decision the next day and puts his arm around her and tells her, 
that he's proud of her and that he trusts her and he's excited about this day for her and that their purpose today is to have fun and be who she is. And I trust you. And went around with the rest of the young ladies and did the same thing. And the match began. She had averaged like 1.4 kills a game, four or five a match, you know, whatever for her career. She's at the end of her sophomore year. In the national championship game against Texas, she had 25 kills. (laughs) She had 21 digs to go with that. She was named MVP of the game, all-tournament team, and almost – you know, single-handedly annihilated Texas. They came at her, and she went right back at This her. is the unorthodox one. This is the one he was <laughs> thinking about taking out. This is the one, you know, of the six girls. She was not the All-American, but she played, like, the greatest match of her life and set an NCAA record for the most kills in a match. And so as he's speaking to her afterwards, just he and she in a private conversation, he says, you were so special today, Kate. What was the difference? Tell me, tell me, what was the difference? And she was very emotional, and she sort of got choked up. She said, Coach, it's the first time you trusted me. You know, because a a coach wants to fix things. You know, I mean, typically we want to make people better, and so we talk about fixing things a lot of times. Sometimes we we can lose sight of that building up the strength part of them, knowing as perfectionists we'll never be perfect, but... The importance of trust and instilling someone with trust is paramount. And he knew at that moment that the words that come out of his mouth can change the destiny of a person. And they both realized that the words that came out of their own mouth, as they look in the mirror, can instill trust or infuse us with doubt. And that this trust variable, this, this ability to make a choice at a moment in time that I can and will do this, changed her life, changed her destiny. And to this day, no one's done what she's done, and they won the national championship. She probably throughout the year, understandably so, heard the coach say, hey, that was great, but if you do this or you do that, it'll be even better. You know, that's probably what he said. He's a coach. Right. But at that point, because it's the last game and that's it, he just said, hey, I trust you, go for it. Wow, what a difference. You know, and I've worked with some great coaches in my life, and I remember Roy Williams saying that, you know, in today's athlete, the athletes that you really need to probably say eight encouraging things to every one correction you make with them. And uh, I don't know what the formula is or if that's it, but it certainly weights on the other side. And I'm not sure that our role models or the way we've learned or our experiences, we would do that. But from this science here and this understanding of what I'm sharing today, Wow, what an important thing for us as performers, us as leaders in business and life and sport to be able to instill that along with continually trying to get better. Yeah, Doug, the power of trust. What do you think? Well, you know, I'm on a number of boards, and if there's anything that I get invited to to have private conversations with the uh, owner-operator, entrepreneur-leader, it's in this notion of their management team And I'm going to use the term delegation, for example, because that's a trust issue with an entrepreneurial leader who's built his or her baby. And everybody and everybody knows that they're going to have to delegate some of their responsibilities, some of their leadership responsibilities if the company is going to grow, correct? 
That's a really, really hard thing. Uh, it gets back to the whole thing we talked about, you know, loyalty versus performance. But what's fascinating to me is when you say trust in the context of a actually in the sporting world, but in the business world, it really is defined by freedom to fail. When I sit down and saw it, say, are you going to delegate this piece of the business? Yeah, I'm delegating. Do they have the freedom to fail? Do they have enough authority to make decisions that are consequential if they fail? If the answer is no, then you haven't given them the freedom to fail, and there is no trust there. So, so the, That is a defining moment, isn't that it? That is a defining moment. When you turn over a piece of your baby and your company to somebody with enough authority to go out and, 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 and fail and have it consequential to the company, but that's what you have to do to get to the next level. And what it sounds to me like to a certain extent is that coach – literally was coaching, didn't release her. He effectively gave her the freedom to fail her way, and she performed. So I think it's, it's a remarkable uh, illustration. So mental toughness, this is really a fascinating study, David, talking about mental toughness. And uh, we've covered the critical aspects of embracing the pressure, practicing for the emergencies, painting that masterpiece, and really trusting your talent. Join us next time as we look further into this topic. And if you liked what you heard today, subscribe and share. And thanks for joining us. And we look forward to talking with you next time.